Welcome back, our fellow patriots, to the Patriot Lessons American History and Civics Podcast. Today, we continue our deep dive into the Declaration of Independence. We are nearing the end of our review of the impressively long list of grievances against the king. If you missed our prior episodes, you might want to go back and catch up to where we are now. Plus, Mike Gerard is slowly but surely remastering our catalog, starting with our most recent episodes first. A couple of older episodes may have jumped out as a newly released episode. That is due to the remastering. We hope that didn't confuse anyone. Today, I'm joined by Mike Gerard and bombastic Brent Bassett. We are exploring the following three grievances from the Declaration of Independence. Quote, he has abdicated government here by declaring us out of his protection and waging war against us. He has plundered our seas, ravaged our coast, burned our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people. He is at this time transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries to complete the works of death. Desolation and tyranny, already begun with circumstances of cruelty and perfidy, scarcely paralleled in the most barbarous ages and totally unworthy of the head of a civilized nation, unquote. In our last regular episode, we explored the 21st and 22nd grievances that the colonists made against the king. The 21st grievance included taking away our colonial charters, abolishing laws, and fundamentally altering governments, while the 22nd grievance involved suspending legislatures and Parliament declaring it had absolute authority to legislate for the colonists in all cases whatsoever. To get us started is Mike Gerard host of his own Be Reasonable podcast and fabulous sound designer of this podcast, Mike Gerard, Take it away. Why, thank you, Judge. Now, before I jump into the topic, I just want to remind everyone about the Patriot Week Foundation's 8th Annual Patrick Henry Awards on March 23rd, 2021, and it's via Zoom. We'll be joined by ABC's Bob Woodruff, who is an amazing journalist and presenter who was also grievously injured as a war correspondent in Iraq. There's also going to be a riveting reenactment of Patrick Henry's Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death speech by Patriot Week co-creator Leah Warren. And there's also a great Abigail Adams reenactor who's going to be there. There's going to be a moving tribute to Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And a special guest will be retired Brigadier General John Slocum. And you can check it all out at PatriotWeek.org. And now, on to the 23rd grievance against the king. This is it. He abdicated government here by declaring us out of his protection and waging war against us. Now, my guess is that this is a grievance you've never heard of. You probably never have given much thought to this idea since the focus of most American history courses is on the Stamp Act, the Boston Massacre, the Tea Party, Lexington and Concord, and the Declaration of Independence. But this is a very important grievance that places the Declaration of Independence in much sharper focus. And to really understand it, we need to go back to the beginning. As we discussed many episodes ago, the whole purpose of government is to protect your unalienable rights. As English philosophers Thomas Hobbes and John Locke explained, we give up to the government some of our natural rights to protect our general safety and security. For example, when there's a government, if we are robbed, we give up the right to hunt down the criminals and beat them up. Instead, the government is supposed to ensure our protection through the police, fire department, border patrol, and military. In other words, we give up vigilante justice because it leads to a spiral of revenge and, as Hobbes put it, a war of all against all that leads to a nasty, brutish, and short life. 
So in exchange for giving up the right to pursue and punish wrongdoers, we create a government that gives us all more security. This idea of the social compact is intended to ensure that the government protects the people at large. But what happens when the government, instead of protecting you, makes you the target of its military might? Now, we covered this in part at the beginning of the grievances in episode 25 when we discussed how the king had become the enemy of the colonists. As tensions between the colonists and the empire were boiling over in the wake of the passage of the Intolerable Acts in 1774, the king was all but done trying to reconcile with the colonies. Recall that in the spring of 1773, Bostonians had conducted a small affair called the Boston Tea Party, and the next year, Great Britain reacted by enacting the Intolerable Acts, the Boston Port Act, the Massachusetts Government Act, the Quartering Act of 1774, and the Administration of Justice Act, which many colonials dubbed the Murder Act. Plus, the Quebec Act poured salt into the wounds. The Empire hoped to break the spirit of the colonists, but the reaction was exactly the opposite. Those opposed to English oppression only stiffened their resolve to resist. The acts had been passed in March through June of 1774. General Thomas Gage, the Empire's man in the field in Massachusetts, conceded by September 25th that the widespread resistance to the Intolerable Acts made them unenforceable except by military force. There is no prospect of putting the late coercive acts in force, but by first making a conquest of the New England provinces. On August 26, 1774, Suffolk County in Massachusetts convened a convention in which Boston's Son of Liberty, Joseph Warren, introduced a set of resolves calling for the open defiance of the Intolerable Acts. These Suffolk resolves also declared a boycott of British goods and the raising of local militias. On September 17th, the Continental Congress adopted the resolves as their own. William Legge, the second Earl of Dartmouth, most commonly referred to as Lord Dartmouth, was the Secretary of State for the American colonies underneath his stepbrother, Lord North. And when Lord Dartmouth heard that the Suffolk Resolves had been adopted by the First Continental Congress, he wrote on November 1st that the colonies had declared war on England. Of course, that was a bit of an overreaction and premature. The shot heard round the world, universally acknowledged as the first shots of the American Revolution, wouldn't happen for several months on April 19, 1775. Although the colonists had substantially increased the vigor of their opposition, it clearly fell short of a declaration of revolution. But no matter, just a couple of weeks later, King George III privately wrote Lord North that this contest would be decided by arms. The New England governments are in a state of rebellion. Blows must decide whether they are to be subject to this country or independent. About six months later, this private conclusion was brought into the public eye. In February 1775, Lord North addressed the House of Commons, declaring that New England was in rebellion and the king should subdue it. The House of Commons approved the address by a two-to-one margin. The outbreak of armed conflict occurred about two months later on April 19, 1775 with the shot heard round the world at Lexington and then the subsequent battle at Concord. Now, we're actually going to take a deeper dive on that topic in an upcoming special episode. 
But moving along, on June 5th, 1775, King George III wrote another letter to Lord Dartmouth declaring that America must be a colony of England or treated as an enemy. But on the other side of the ocean, the colonists were seeking peace. As we discussed in episode 25, the Second Continental Congress drafted and forwarded the Olive Branch Petition to the king. The colonists were hoping that the king was still at heart good-natured to the colonies and had been manipulated by his ministers. If only they could give the king the insight he needed to look past the evil designs of his ministers, there could be a peaceful reconciliation of the empire and the colonies brokered by the king. The petition recognized the traditional ties of the colonies, professed the colonies' desire to remain loyal, laid blame on the king's ministers, not the king himself, asked the king to look favorably on the colonies, and begged the king to personally intervene to garner peace within the empire. However, the colonists weren't going to be servile. The very next day after approving the Olive Branch Petition, the Second Continental Congress approved military action in defense of the unalienable rights of the colonists in its Declaration of the Causes and Necessities of Taking Up Arms. The Declaration, half written by Dickinson and half by Thomas Jefferson, proclaimed that Parliament having attempted to affect their cruel and impolitic purpose of enslaving these colonies by violence, rendered it necessary for us to close with their last appeal from reason to arms. We have counted the cost of this contest and find nothing so dreadful as voluntary slavery. Honor, justice, and humanity forbid us tamely to surrender that freedom which we receive from our gallant ancestors, and which our innocent posterity have a right to receive from us. We cannot endure the infamy and guilt of resigning succeeding generations to that wretchedness, which inevitably awaits them if we basely entail hereditary bondage upon them. In our own native land, in defense of the freedom that is our birthright and which we ever enjoyed to the late violation of it or the protection of our property acquired solely by the honest industry of our forefathers and ourselves against violence actually offered, we have taken up arms. The colonists were playing a fine line. On one hand, asking for peace. On the other hand, preparing for war. They were hoping that this carrot-and-stick-type approach would result in both reconciliation and the protection of their unalienable rights. They need not have bothered. Historian Pauline Mayer explains what happened with the Olive Branch Petition. John Dickinson drafted the Olive Branch Petition to the King that Congress adopted on July 8, 1775, signed and sent to England under the care of Richard Penn, a former governor of Pennsylvania who arrived at Bristol in mid-August. A week later, Penn and the colonial agent, Arthur Lee, sent a copy of the petition to Lord Dartmouth, the king's secretary for the American colonies, And on September 1, the first moment that was permitted us, 
personally delivered the original. Dartmouth promised to give the petition to George III, who had refused to receive it in person. But when Penn and Lee urged Dartmouth to get a reply, they were told, since the king would not formally receive the petition on the throne, no answer would be given. The Olive Branch Petition was the first and only document physically signed by the Second Continental Congress until the Declaration of Independence. Its tone was of reconciliation. It didn't even point out any grievances against the empire. And the result? The petition was met with contempt, insult, oppression, and injury. But this shouldn't have been a surprise. Between the time Richard Penn arrived in early August and Dartmouth took the petition on September 1st, the king had made clear his position. He declared war. Specifically, on August 23rd, 1775, King George III issued a proclamation of rebellion. In pertinent part, it proclaimed that the colonists had forgotten their allegiance to the empire, had obstructed the law and commerce, acted in a hostile manner, and had already been levying a war against the empire. It then proclaimed, All of our officers, civil and military, are obliged to exert their utmost endeavors to suppress such a rebellion and to bring the traitors to justice, but that our subjects of this realm and the dominions are bound by law to be aiding and assisting in the suppression of such rebellion and to disclose and make known all traitorous conspiracies and attempts against us, our crown and dignity. And we do accordingly strictly charge and command all our officers, as well civil as military, and all others, our obedient and loyal subjects, to use their utmost endeavors to withstand and suppress such rebellion, and to disclose and make known all treasons or traitorous conspiracies which they know to be against us, our crown and dignity. Indeed, the king was simply expressing the course of action he had determined to take well before the Olive Branch Petition or the Declaration of Causes and Necessities even arrived in England. Americans were to be treated as foreign enemies. This language very much paralleled text used by King Charles Edward Stuart in 1745 to declare parts of Scotland in rebellion. The colonists were condemned, not as subjects or even cousins, but like members of an enemy nation. This, of course, would take the conflict to an entirely different magnitude. To put down a protest, a boycott, smugglers, rabble-rousers, and tax evaders was one thing. To conquer a foreign enemy was an entirely different one. The scope of military force and barbarism would be completely different. Instructions from the town of Boston to the representatives recognize the cold, hard reality. We have seen the humble petitions of these colonies to the king of Great Britain, repeatedly rejected with disdain. For the prayer of peace, he has tendered the sword. For liberty, chains, and for safety, death. He has licensed the instruments of his hostile oppressions to rob us of our property, to burn our houses, and to spill our blood. But to lay aside any lingering doubt, the king came in with both barrels blasting in a speech to both houses of parliament on Thursday, the 26th of October, 1775. 
The rebellious war now levied is become more general and is manifestly carried on for the purpose of establishing an independent empire. I need not dwell upon the fatal effects of the success of such a plan. The object is too important, the spirit of British nation too high, the resources which God hath blessed her too numerous to give up so many colonies which she has planted with great industry, nursed with great tenderness, encouraged with many commercial advantages, and protected and defended at much expense of blood and treasure. It is now become the part of wisdom and in its effects of clemency to put a speedy end to these disorders by the most decisive exertions. For this purpose I have increased my naval establishment and greatly augmented my land forces. Indeed, by proclaiming the colonies outside of his protection, the king continued the declaration of war. And following up on the king's declaration that the colonies were outside of his protection, Parliament passed the Prohibitory Act by an overwhelming vote in the House of Commons, 112 to 16, and in the House of Lords by 48 to 12. The king gave his royal assent the day after its approval by the Lords, making it law on December 22, 1775. It provided that all American vessels and their cargoes could be confiscated, in essence, treating Americans as foreign enemies, thereby plundering American seas. This law provoked a strong reaction of condemnation in America, which John Adams insightfully expressed. I know not whether you have seen the Act of Parliament called the Restraining Act, or Prohibitory Act, or Piratical Act, or plundering act, or act of independency, for by all these titles it is called. I think the most apposite is the act of independency, for the king, lords, and commons have united in sundering this country, and I think forever. It is complete dismemberment of the British Empire. It throws 13 colonies out of the royal protection, levels all distinctions, it makes us independent in spite of our supplications and entreaties. It may be fortunate that the act of independency should come from the British Parliament rather than the American Congress. But it is very odd that Americans should hesitate at accepting such a gift from them. Although Adams thought this spelled the end for any allegiance to the empire and that in effect had become an independent nation, that sentiment wasn't widely shared in the colonies. But in the end, Adams was 100% right. Bombastic Brent Bassett, it's time for you to help us understand the next grievance. Why, thank you, Mike Gerard. The 24th grievance is, quote, He has plundered our seas, ravaged our coasts, burned our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people, unquote. Although the king did not call the colonies out of the protection of the English officially until August 1775, the British were well along in engaging in war. In fact, even before the Prohibitory Act, even before the king's October proclamation, and even before 
Lexington, and Concord in April, the English military was pressing for a military solution to the troubles in the colony. For example, in March 1775, Marine British Major John Pitcairn, stationed in Boston, wrote to Lord John Montague, 4th Earl of Sandwich, the first Lord of the Admiralty. One active campaign, a smart action, and burning two or three of their towns will set everything to right. That's right. Before any shots were ever fired, leading British officers were already advocating for burning down a few towns to cower the colonists into submission. And yes, John Montague was known as Lord Sandwich, and many think we have him to thank for that great American delight, the sandwich. Tasty. The day after Lexington and Concord, British Admiral Graves advocated for the burning of American seaports. That didn't happen immediately. Instead, the British ships merely threatened to bomb and burn down seaports to coerce supplies from American colonies. For example, Captain James Wallace used this tactic against Newport Portsmouth, now known as New Hampshire, and Marblehead in the same colony. Meanwhile, His Majesty's ship the Lively, captained by Captain Thomas Bishop, targeted his cannons on the town of Marblehead and Salem, Massachusetts. He demanded that they not help the Patriots of Boston. Indeed, he also extorted supplies at the threat of destroying the towns. Many residents simply fled. In May, the 64-gun Her Majesty's ship Asia pulled up to New York Harbor, intimidating the city. Graves and Pitcairn's ideas were put into action beginning in June. Charleston, Massachusetts, just across the Mystic River from Boston, was ignited on June 17, 1775, by a cannon barrage and other incendiary shells. This bombardment occurred as part of the British Army's lead-up to the Battle of Bunker and Breed's Hill. Sharpshooters had been picking off British soldiers from empty Charleston houses, so arguably they had made Charleston a military target. In the middle of June 1775, there was a skirmish often referred to as the Battle of Machias. To make a long story very short, American colonists resisted attempts by the British military to garner supplies from the port at Machias, Massachusetts, and a small naval battle broke out. The British Navy, the pride of the empire, was repelled. The same month, Coercion evolved into outright raiding. A small fleet under the command of British Captain Wallace bombarded the minor seaport of Stonington, Rhode Island. Wallace moved his small but growing fleet to Bristol, Rhode Island, and on August 7, 1775, launched another attack. One witness reported what happened. The night was dark and raining, and people ran in terror and confusion. For an hour, a hundred and twenty cannon and cascades, mortar, fire, and incendiary rounds, were discharged on us and kept up constant fire on the people. The town coughed up forty sheep. Satiated for the time being, Wallace's flotilla departed. Later that month, 
the Wallace-led marauding navy became hungry again. The Wallace flotilla raided several locations in Connecticut. The same month, Her Majesty's ship the Otter, a naval sloop, began raiding plantations in Virginia. Worse, in New York City, on August 24, 1775, the 64-gun Her Majesty's Asia, anchored off of Wall Street, bombarded New York City's Fort George with a 32-gun broadside. Miraculously, it was a relatively ineffective barrage. No one was killed, and property damage was minimal. Still, unsurprisingly, it provoked a mass exodus out of the city. Large quarters of the city began to take on the appearance of a ghost town. As we just learned, in August, King George III had proclaimed the colonies in a state of rebellion. Any pretense of restraint was obliterated in September, when Vice Admiral Samuel Graves was instructed by England to unleash the dogs of war. Graves ordered his fleet to Proceed along the New England coast and lay waste, burn, and destroy any seaport towns that are accessible to His Majesty's ships. The British took this order to heart. To avenge the Battle of Machias, Lieutenant Henry Mowat was ordered to execute a just punishment on the town of Falmouth. On October 17, 1775, Lieutenant Mowat's small fleet pulled up to the town and demanded that its residents give up all weapons and take oaths of allegiance to the British Empire. If they didn't comply, the fleet would bombard Falmouth. The townspeople refused these demands, and most fled. As promised, Mowat let rain down a massive bombardment that lasted from 9.30 a.m. to 6 p.m. In addition, a landing party torched several buildings. The fires and bombardment wrecked the courthouse, fire station, public library, and 130 homes. A week and a day later, on October 25th, British Captain Matthew Squire led a flotilla to attack and burn down Hampton, Virginia, but the attack was foiled. First, Virginians brilliantly blocked the attack by sinking vessels in the channel that the Royal Navy would need to use to approach the town. Kevin Phillips describes what happens next. The next day... In a confrontation, some enthusiastic Virginians have called the Lexington of the South. The British hacked through the sunken barricade and burned a farmhouse, but were routed when Patriot Colonial William Woodford arrived with a company of riflemen. These poured such heavy and accurate fire on the British vessels, sailors couldn't remain on deck long enough to fire their cannon. That squire had to retreat, losing one of his tenders and ten men captured. The next month, British Captain Montague bombarded another Virginia city, Jamestown. The British, however, were just getting started in Virginia. In December, they occupied the port of Norfolk, which, incidentally, was a hotbed of loyalists. Still, the Patriots were able to defeat British forces composed of redcoats, 
loyalists, and freed slaves at what has been dubbed the Battle of the Great Bridge. The British, sensing a military defeat, abandoned Norfolk and then, on New Year's Day, bombarded it with their fleet. It started to burn, and historians have later learned the Patriots fed the fires to burn it down because it was a hotbed of loyalists. They did not want a hub of villainy and scum in their midst. We'll never find a more wretched hive of scum and villainy. We must be cautious. Leave it to Judge Warren to slip in our script a Star Wars quote at any opportunity. Dang right. And live long and prosper. And may the force be with you. Hey, wait a minute. Live long and the force be with you? I'm so confused. But don't worry, the British were not confused. They were on the warpath. Newport, Connecticut was another target of the English Empire. It was periodically harassed, threatened, and fired upon for months. By the time of the New Year, the fifth largest city in America was largely destroyed and vacant. Gloucester, Massachusetts, and Jamestown, Rhode Island also came under assault from the English Navy. Kevin Phillips has given the best survey of this grievance we can find. He summarizes it as follows. Between April 18, 1775 and New Year's Day, 1776, British warships bombarded, torched, or attempted to burn over a dozen American cities and towns from Falmouth, now Portland, in the main district of Massachusetts, to Norfolk, Virginia, 700 miles south. Another dozen were openly threatened. For some months, this represented a deliberate policy, spelled out by Admiral Graves and reiterated by Lords George Germain. To George Washington, the burning of Falmouth was an outrage exceeding in barbarity and cruelty every hostile act practiced among civilized nations. Of course, the British Empire thought that this show of force and cruelty would result in the utter collapse of American resistance. Instead, it stiffened the resolve of the patriots and it actually turned many previously unengaged and loyal subjects into the arms of the resistance. In addition, the Second Continental Congress referred to the brutality that had happened before July 6, 1775 in its Declaration of the Causes and Necessity of Taking Up Arms as part of the reason why violent resistance against British oppression was justified. As Mike Gerard already covered, under the Prohibitory Act, the Empire would be plundering American seaships. Moreover, Parliament passed a law banning colonists from fishing in traditional areas off the coasts of the colonies. More plundering of the seas. But the British had much more in mind than seizing vessels and fishing rights. As the bombarding and burning of towns revealed, they were trying to militarily crush the colonists. This grievance unquestionably strengthened the reasoning for independence. And for our next grievance, Judge Warren, take it away. Thank you, bombastic Brent Bassett. The 25th grievance is as follows, quote, 
He is at this time transporting large armies of foreign mercenaries to complete the works of death, desolation, and tyranny already begun with circumstances of cruelty and perfidy scarcely paralleled in the most barbarous ages and totally unworthy of the head of a civilized nation, unquote. On its face, this is a damning grievance. The English, of course, had a different perspective. They had a long-standing historical practice of hiring foreign mercenaries to fight its overseas wars. As we have discussed in a prior episode, the English had a deeply rooted aversion to standing armies. Moreover, as an island empire, Britain focused its military might on the navy. In light of these circumstances, it was much easier to simply hire troops to fight the empire's land battles. In fact, the British hired mercenaries to put down rebellions in Ireland and Scotland and during the Seven Years' War against the French in Canada. As we have discussed before, King George III was from the German House of Hanover. His grandfather didn't even speak English and was much more interested in his German lands than running England. His father straddled between German and English interest, and then finally George III focused much more on England. Still, because of the deep ties to Germany, it was only natural that the British kings would hire troops from northern Germany, including Hesse Castle, Brunswick, Waldeck, Anspach Bayreuth, and others. Nevertheless, the British kings only with great reluctance hired such troops to be deployed within the British Isles. In fact, they only did it twice, once to fight against Scottish rebels and another time to protect against a possible French invasion. The British public didn't care too much about these exceptional circumstances because the troops were not used against Englishmen. Back then, and even now, Scotland was a different kingdom and the Scots were definitely considered a different people. Albeit within the British Empire, and the French, of course, were mortal enemies. The bottom line was at the time colonial resistance became hot, England's army was tiny. With a population of about 7 million people in England and Wales, the standing army only had about 35,000 troops, with many coming from Ireland and Scotland. Recruiting Englishmen to the army was difficult to begin with. To recruit them to fight their English cousins was nearly impossible. If they were going to fight a land war in the vast colonial frontier, foreign troops would be indispensable. Originally, King George III was hoping to hire 20,000 Russians and engage in negotiations to do the same. But in the end, Empress Catherine the Great turned down the deal. Although we don't have much documentation, historians believe that Russia just had no desire to help the English Empire. By 1775, the English had alienated almost the entire whole of Europe, and Russia had no interest in helping England out of its box. This delay indirectly helped the Americans, because the ultimately fruitless protracted negotiations between Russia and the British required the king to slow down deploying foreign troops on American soil. With Russia providing no assistance, the king turned to more reliable, traditional sources of soldiers. The colonists learned in May of 1776 that the empire was going to wage its war with 40,000 fresh troops, who would be soon landing on the American homeland. Approximately 12,000 of these soldiers were hired mercenaries, Hessens, Hanoverians, and Mecklenburgers were hired from Germany. Plus, many thousands more were Scottish Hollanders and Scottish Highlanders. Holy smokes, Judge, that's remarkable. The British had to hire all these troops to come together to even have a fighting chance against the colonists? Oh, yes. I was getting worried. 
But did you hear it, Judge Warren? Come together? No, no, no. You can't just keep looking for shameless excuses to force me to listen to yet another horrific clip. Bombastic Brent Bassett. Yes, yes I did. Thanks, Mike Gerard, for that opening. Now I got that ridiculous song stuck in my head. This is torture. Oh, I swear I'm going to get back at you. Okay, Mike Gerard. No regrets. Only you could make us come together to interpret the podcast with the Beatles. As I was saying, the king decided to crush the Americans with great assistance from hired foreign troops. Tellingly, several of the treaties with the German states writing their soldiers provided that they would be compensated if their soldiers were injured or killed. Americans eventually satirized the situation by claiming that the German leaders were hoping their troops would be annihilated so they could reap the maximum amount of bounties in light of their deaths. In any event, several English political leaders warned that this was the wrong move, that England should not sully itself by hiring foreigners to fight against Englishmen in the colonies, and that it would stiffen resistance to English rule. For example, Ambrose Searle, secretary to Admiral Lord Howe, reflected both sentiments when he wrote that he wished that The rebellion could have been reduced without any foreign troops at all, for I fear our employment of these upon this service would tend to irritate and inflame the Americans. It is a misfortune we ever had such a dirty, cowardly set of contemptible miscreants. And that passage, my fellow patriots was from the Secretary of the Admiral in charge of England's fleet, waging war against the Americans. Despite these and other warnings, the king plowed ahead. In his address before the Parliament on October 26, 1775, he told the world he was negotiating to obtain foreign assistance to help put down the rebellion. So the news in May 1776 that those soldiers were coming may not have been a surprise, but it still sparked an overwhelming chorus of opposition from the colonists. The Americans' complaints, of course, fell on deaf ears, and the Americans knew it. But it had a dramatic effect in alienating a large portion of the American population and dramatically increasing support for independence. Searle actually underestimated the effect it would have. Historian Pauline Mayer summed it up concisely. The effect was electrifying. In fact, there was no question that Searle's warning rang true. So much true that hiring the foreign mercenaries was considered to be the end of any hope that the confrontation between the empire and her colonies would be resolved in any manner other than on the battlefield. Historian William Edward Hartpole Leckie, who wrote a monumental eight-volume History of England, drew the point sharply. The conduct of England in hiring German mercenaries to subdue the essentially English population beyond the Atlantic made reconciliation hopeless and the Declaration of Independence inevitable. The Germans had a well-earned reputation for cruelty and barbarism. The English had decided to sick these bloodthirsty barbarians on the Americans. The English understood that hiring the Germans would be absolutely considered as a lowering down a hammer of barbarism on the American people. This had gone beyond deadly serious to an existential threat to the colonists. There was one upside to England's cruelty. As we all know, the Americans were aided by France and Spain after the rebels won the Battle of Saratoga. Because the British had already hired forward mercenaries to battle and murder Americans, 
The Americans did not need to hesitate about receiving foreign assistance during the American Revolution. Leckie continues, It was ideal for Americans not to have any further scruples about calling in foreigners to assist when England herself set the example. The 25th grievance was indeed electrifying. And it raised the stakes for not just the colonists, but for the world. The American Revolution was no longer a mere civil uprising or war between cousins. It would soon enough be a global conflagration drawing in the major imperial powers to the tinderbox of America. By depending so heavily on foreign mercenaries, the English Empire's strategy embedded within itself the seeds of its own destruction. When the Americans were able to secure the aid of the French and Spanish, the British Empire was not just at war with the Americans, but with two major European powers. Some key takeaways from this episode. The Declaration of Independence is not just a declaration of principles and lofty sentiments, but it lists a specific set of grievances by which the British Empire had violated the first principles of free and just government. The 23rd grievance addresses how the king declared us out of his protection and waged war against us, thereby breaking the social compact, the rule of law, unalienable rights, and blowing up the idea of a limited government. The 24th grievance explains that the king, by plundering our seas, ravaging our coast, burning our towns, and destroying the lives of our people, had also annihilated the social compact, unalienable rights, the rule of law, and destroyed limited government. The 25th grievance revealed that the king, by transporting large armies of German and other foreign mercenaries to brutally attack Americans, viciously violated the social compact, limited government, unalienable rights, and the rule of law. These grievances confirmed that the American Revolution was fought to defend liberty and the first principles of free and just government. Please join us next time for our next general episode when we complete our exploration of the grievances against the king and the Declaration of Independence. In particular, the last two grievances, the 26th and 27th, which are the following. Quote, He has constrained our fellow citizens taken captive on the high seas to bear arms against their country, to become the executioners of their friends and brethren, or to fall themselves by their hands. He has excited domestic insurrections against us, and he has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers, the merciless Indian savages, whose known rule of warfare is undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. Unquote. This podcast is produced by Patriot Week. Please visit Patriot Week's website at patriotweek.org for many fabulous resources, including our new daily video series, Save Our Republic. I am Oakland County Circuit Court Judge Michael Warren and author of America's Survival Guide. Our other two terrific Patriot narrators are Mike Gerard Skenechny, who is our sound designer and host of his own unique podcast, Be Reasonable, with Mike Gerard, and Bombastic Brent Bassett, Bombastic Bartender and Dungeon Master. Our fellow Patriots, thank you for listening. And don't forget about the Patrick Henry Awards via Zoom on March 23rd, 2021. Visit PatriotWeek.org for more details. Until next time, God bless you and God bless America. Thank you, our fellow patriots, for listening. Please subscribe to our podcast and rate us. That is, if you're going to give us those five golden stars, we can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and many other platforms. You can also find much more at patriotweek.org, which includes videos, lesson plans, TV episodes, and many other goodies. Patriot Week is celebrated every year from September 11th, the anniversary of the terrorist attacks, through September 17th, the anniversary of the signing of the Constitution. It has been recognized by the U.S. Senate and many states. 
Patriot Week was started by then 10-year-old Leah Warren when she pounded on the table and demanded a new celebration of America. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and on Instagram, or reach out directly at mwarren at patriotweek.org. Also consider Judge Warren's book, America's Survival Guide, How to Stop America's Impending Suicide by Reclaiming Our First Principles and History by visiting americasurvivalguide.com, Amazon, or any other online retailer. Until next time, God bless you and God bless America.